Well, good evening. Good evening. Uh, okay, there you are. You are awake. All right, we find ourselves uh, tonight in the middle, uh, the third week of a five-week series through the book of Second Peter, titled Promises, as, as Peter bases the future hope that we have in the return of Jesus, and he looks back to what Jesus has done that, that gives us a hope and an assurance that if you're a believer tonight, you serve a God who is faithful to his promises. Well, a well-known TV show, um, a sitcom that, that's been very popular here in the United States, especially amongst younger people, my generation, is a TV show called The Office. The Office, which was a comedy show, I think it ran nine or ten seasons on NBC. And one of, um, arguably, the main character in this, this uh, comedy show is um, The Boss. It centers kind of around The Office and all the different people that work in this paper company. But it centers around The Boss, and his name is Michael Scott. And if you've seen any of the show, if you've just seen one episode of, of this, you know kind of a little bit about this. This isn't like your stereotypical driven manager that everyone looks up to. He's kind of, not kind of, he's a goofball. He's always messing things up. He's always the joke. He's always fun. And there, there's an episode um, later in, in, the, in the office, I believe it's six seasons in, where, where we're introduced near, early on in the episode, Michael Scott makes this quote talking about a group of kids, about 15 kids at an elementary school nearby. He says this, I just, I, I fell in love with those kids and I didn't want to see them fall victim to the system. So I made them a promise. I told them that if they graduated from high school, I would pay for their college education. I've made some empty promises in my life, but hands down, that was the most generous. <laughs> and and the, the episode unfolds right away as we see this promise that, that Michael Scott made years earlier. And that day is now those kids are graduating from high school. And he finally has to go tell them, I don't have money for you. And the whole time, everyone in the office knows, as an audience member, you know that there's no way he has money. He's notoriously bad with his finances. And you know that this promise of any promise he's made is a totally empty promise. And it's such a cringe-worthy episode as you can't help but laugh at how awkward it is he tries to tell that in a nice way that this thing you've been working for for the last 10 years, it's all a lie. It's a promise I made that I have no basis of keeping. And he almost redeems himself at the end where, where he goes, well, if you go to college, you're going to need a computer. And he starts pulling out a big suitcase and all the kids who are really upset start to lean forward and like, okay, at least that. And he goes, and to, to, to make sure your computer works, you need a backup battery. <laughs> the, the anger and the yelling started all over again as they had been promised something that they were not delivered on. Peter now turns in 2 Peter chapter 2 to false prophets and false teaching. When he looks at these false teachers, false teaching will always overpromise and underdeliver. And Jesus always keeps his promises and always delivers. The false teachers will always overpromise and underdeliver. Meanwhile, Jesus keeps his promises and will always deliver. If you have your Bibles, would you open them tonight to the book of 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, the majority of the text tonight is found in the handout you received. However, it was too large to put all the way in there. So if you have a Bible open, um, that would be the most helpful. If you're looking it up on your phone, I'm using and reading from the, the ESV translation. 
Well, we looked last week, Dan Cameron did a great job walking us through the end of chapter 1, looking at these witnesses to the promise of Jesus Christ, and he ended talking about prophets and the prophecy of the Old Testament and how we could trust Scripture and how that's a future thing that we can count on because we look at how the prophets have been proven true. And he transitions from true prophets, biblical prophets, now to, in chapter 2, he addresses false prophets and false teaching. And as we look tonight at 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to discover four truths in this passage about false teaching. Four truths about false teaching. Starting in verse 1, it says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction." And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The first truth we see in this, these first verses, the first truth is we see the reality of false teaching. Peter wants his audience, and we tonight should open our eyes to the reality of false teaching in our world. Peter wanted to make sure they realized that false teaching in our world is not to be surprised or we shouldn't be caught off guard, but false teaching for us as believers, we should expect it. We should be actively on the lookout from it. Now, what kind of false teaching is Peter repudiating here? He doesn't go into a lot of details. Um, Just judging from what the book's overall subject is about, especially next week as we transition to chapter 3, it seems that they were probably denying the return of Jesus. And because they were denying the future return of Jesus, they were denying the need to live a godly life now. Um, But we don't know all the specifics of that. And I think that's actually helpful for us because rather than narrow in on the false teaching, then we can look just at general principles that Peter outlines for them. In introducing this idea of the reality of false teaching, he he highlights for us a few themes that we're going to discover as we go through this chapter. For instance, what are the fate of those teachers and those who follow it? We see their fate is destruction at the end of verse 1 as well as in verse 3. We see the attractiveness of their false teaching as he talks about the sensuality and the seduction of it. And we see the motives of these false teachers and that they're motivated by greed and selfish desires. But as Christians, as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus tonight, our eyes should be open to the reality that there will be people in and around us who will not be faithful to the gospel, and we should live wise lives expecting that. Jesus himself warned of false teachers that would come into our world. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 11, he said this, Jesus said, many false prophets will arise and lead many people astray. This was looking forward to the time after his ascension and before his return that Jesus expects that our period in which we find ourselves would be characterized by false prophets arising and leading people astray. In fact, if you remember earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, when he sent out his disciples into the world, he sends them out with this charge in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 
See, we should understand the reality of false teaching in our world, which should move us as Christians to live lives and should seek wisdom and discernment in our lives. See, so often we think that, that if we see false teaching, it will be very easy to spot. If they're going to walk in with a big sign on their forehead, false teacher. They're going to be like, oh, I, I know I shouldn't trust that guy. I should, I'm going to trust something else. But that's not how false teaching works. Look at it, verse 1. Again, in the middle there, he says, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. See, when Peter addresses false teaching, he's not talking about other religions. He's not talking about people who are outside Christianity. What he's talking about is people, as we're going to discover tonight, people who would say they're Christians and would have an evidence, some sort of grasp on the truth, but then would twist it would twist it to their own thoughts, their own desires, their own motives. And they can talk some of the language. They look like us. They can talk like us. And so they can come in and secretly start to twist things around. See, the call for us for wisdom is because it's easy, I think, for us to spot people from other religions and things that contradict what the Bible teaches. But we're not just supposed to do that. We should inspect even and live with wisdom for people who would proclaim to be Christians When they say something, we should not just say, okay, that person's a Christian. That must be true. When someone says something, we say, that person's a a Christian is what they're saying lining up with God's word because that defines for us as Christians what is truth. See, we need wise Christians, not clueless Christians, who are just accepting any teaching that would arise in our world. There was a movie in the, uh, the mid-90s. Bill Murray was the star in it, The Man Who Knew Too Little. The Man Who Knew Too Little, which is a comedy movie on Bill Murray. And he finds himself, his, his name is Wally, and he's, he flies over to England to visit his brother to celebrate Wally's own birthday. He invites himself and surprises at his brother's house. And Wally's kind of, he is kind of a goofball, clueless kind of guy. And his brother has a very important business dinner that night. And so rather than have him stay at the dinner, he signs him up for this interactive live drama comedy thing where you show up and they're kind of taken around London and it's like you're part of this sketch where it's like some crime thing and you get to be one of the actors. And Wally's all excited about it. And he's dropped off and about five minutes in, Wally's dropped off and he steps himself into the phone booth in which he was told he would receive a phone call and he answers it. But we find out throughout the movie that this phone call was actually intended for a top-level assassin who's starting an international plot between Great Britain and Russia to try and reignite the Cold War. But Wally thinks this is all part of the game, right? And so they're like, I need you to kill so-and-so. And he's like, okay, that sounds like fun. I'll be there. And he hangs up. He goes, oh boy, this is going to be so much fun. And people start shooting at him. And he just thinks like, wow, this is the greatest immersive comedy experience of my life as he's totally clueless throughout the whole movie. In fact, he saves all of what should be saved. He prevents the Cold War from reigniting again, and he has no idea of what he's done. And that's how the whole movie portrays this clueless person who just luckily survives. See, too often we wander around as Christians just clueless, not looking at wisdom, not looking to discern the messages that are coming at us, even from other people who would claim to be Christians. But we need Christians who are wise, not clueless. See, false teaching will overpromise and underdeliver. Jesus always keeps his promise and always delivers. So the first truth 
of false teaching is we see the reality of false teaching. Second, we see the danger of false teaching. Secondly, we see the danger of false teaching. In verses 4 to 10, it reads this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The danger of false teaching that Peter wants them to understand, looking back at three Old Testament references, is this. What's the danger of whether you fall trapped to this false teaching or not? It's eternity. Eternity is at stake in what we believe. Our very lives and and where we spend eternity is at stake in what we believe and who we follow after. Whether we are righteous or whether we lead on a path to destruction, this is at stake with what we believe. And so he gives us three Old Testament examples, starting first in verse 4. He talks about the angels that defiled themselves. It's a, it's a more unknown story, not super common in the church. Um, but in Genesis chapter 6, the first four verses of Genesis 6, talks about angels coming down and defiling themselves amongst people. And he's talking about how those angels then received judgment and destruction from God. Their sin, because of what they did, was punished. He goes to the next part of Genesis chapter 6, which is the story of Noah and the flood where God looked down on the world and realized that man was so full of sin. And so he decided to to save Noah and his family, but to destroy the rest of the world who found themselves in wickedness. And then the other example that he uses is the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that were large, And that Abraham before had prayed, God, if there's 50 righteous people, will you save this city? God says, I'll save it. And Abraham's like, what about 40? What about 30? And he he finishes his prayer. God, if there's 10 righteous people there, would you save the city? And God said, yes, if there's 10, I will. Well, there wasn't 10. There was one. There was Lot. Lot alone was righteous. And he was saved, but the rest of them were destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah became the archetype example of God punishing the unrighteous and those who do not follow after him. It's used in Isaiah three times, excuse me, twice, in Jeremiah three times, in Amos and Zephaniah. Peter uses it here, Paul uses it in Romans, and Jesus himself used it in the book of Matthew. Talking about the way that we live our lives leads either to destruction or to salvation. See, we see here this basic principle boiled down in chapter, excuse me, in chapter 2, verse 9. It says this, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials or from difficulty and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The basic principle that he uses these Old Testament passages to teach is this. 
is that what we believe, whether it's true or not, affects our eternity. And God will save those who believe in Jesus, but those who do not, who walk in sin, who believe false teaching, put themselves at risk to actually destroying their own lives and leading down a path of destruction. So what's at stake when it comes to false teaching in our world? What's at stake when it comes to whether we're following the Bible alone or whether we're following influences from the people and the world around us? Eternity is at stake. See, we see in this passage, both from talking about Noah and from talking about Lot, that it's only the righteous who are saved. That's what distinguishes them, the righteous who are saved. And today, still, it's only the righteous who can be saved. But it's not our good works of righteousness that save us. The New Testament teaches us that it's Jesus' righteousness when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. If we believe in his perfect life and his righteousness is then given to us that we can have eternal life. But if you're believing in anything else for then, you're walking down a path of destruction that does not lead to life. I know in our world, that's something that we don't like to talk about a lot. But the reality is this. Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation, God punishes sin. God punishes sin. And the reality is you have a decision to make. Do you want to spend eternity paying for your own sin? Or will you believe that Jesus paid for your sin on the cross and let him pay for your sin? That's what's at stake when it comes to false teaching, the, our eternal lives. False teaching overpromises and underdelivers. Jesus keeps his promise and always delivers us. So four truths about false teaching. First, we see the reality of it. Second, the danger of false teaching. Third, we see the seduction of false teaching. The seduction of false teaching. So is in chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. The next paragraph says this. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So we see here the seduction of false teaching in the lives they live that they call others to live a part of as well. We see further insight into a little bit of the content of what they teach in verses 10 to 11. They somehow were blaspheming angels, calling themselves superior to them. But then rather than dwell on their teaching, Paul looks, excuse me, Peter looks more at their living rather than their teaching. And it's their living that these teachers had that they were calling people to be a part of. And we get these awful descriptions of it. Notice again in verse 13, that they 
have pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their, their sin is out in the open. They don't even try to hide it. I forget there's a phrase um, that moms would always say, right? Like nothing good happens after 11 o'clock, right? Like be home and be in bed. I heard an amen over here. That must be a mom, right? Like get home, right? Like because when it's dark out, that's when bad things happen. Well, they were so open in their sin, they didn't care. There's this idea that they were unrelenting. It didn't matter who saw what they did. It said also that they were reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. That meant that, that they were living lives in sin, yet still going and participating in church. Feasting with you is most likely a reference to communion, a partaking of the Lord's table. That they would blaspheme God, blaspheme the Lord's table by living in open and unrepentant sin, not caring who saw it. There's another phrase in verse 14, that they have eyes full of adultery. It's these teachers were objectify people to so they didn't look at people and care about them as individuals, but would look at people and think of how they could satisfy their desires with any other person. People were a means to end of pleasure, not of anything else. We're told they're insatiable for sin. These leaders never stopped sinning and their hearts were trained in greed. To give us an example of what these were like, Peter again references the Old Testament. And he references the prophet, the story of Balaam, the son of Baor, which you find in your Bible in Numbers chapter 22 to 25. We don't have time to go there tonight, so I'll summarize for you the story. In Numbers chapter 22, Israel had been captive in Egypt for 400 years. They've left Egypt, they've wandered in the land, and they're about to enter the land. They're nearing the end of their journey, and they've camped in Moab. Well, this isn't their first time out, and the king of Moab has heard what's happened to the other countries. Basically, they've been demolished, and he's scared. And so he goes to try and hire a prophet, Balaam, to come and pronounce curses on Israel so that his kingship and his country will stand superior to them. Well, God sends an angel on the way as Balaam goes. He sends an angel to stop the prophet from going to Moab to visit this king. And as, as, as Balaam is wandering along with his donkey on the road, the donkey suddenly moves out into the field because it sees the angel of the Lord in front of him, and Balaam doesn't. And so they're walking through a vineyard, and it says that they're upon a wall, and the donkey smashes Balaam into a wall because it sees the angel of the Lord in front of him, and Balaam doesn't. And then they come to a place where he cannot be moved around. And so he sits, the, the animal sits down and in a sense squishing its owner, Balaam. And Balaam again hits it and yells at it to which the donkey replies verbally. It says, do you not see that the angel, I said that the donkey verbally replies to the master, right? The irony is when you read Numbers 22, Balaam just talks back like this is an everyday occurrence. You're like, Balaam, this is not normal. But the donkey replies back to him. See, Balaam became noted throughout Jewish history for A, someone who would go along for their own greed, and that was their motive, but also the way of Balaam was another way of saying the sinful way, the deceptive way. Notice the similarities here in this passage um, in 1 Peter compared to Numbers 22, verse 32. It says this, in, in this passage it says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam. 
And when God confronts Balaam in Numbers 22, he says, Behold, I have come to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. So God is saying that these teachers have a perverse way. And talking about the way of Balaam was a way that is a perverse way before God. So these teachers and this teaching that they had, we see that it's a seductive teaching that draws people in. Basically, it's this. Live your life for your ultimate pleasure. And that's it. Notice that it says that he would entice them in unsteady souls. Verse 18 says, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. See, the reality is false teaching is often seductive. It often sounds good to our human ears. It appeals to the natural desires and pleasures that we may have. They lived lives, the teachers did, of self-expression, of what they would call freedom to do what they wanted. And they invited others to follow in as well. See, the the seduction in it was this. You can do whatever you want. You're free from all these rules and regulations. Look at how we live. This is to how you can live. See, the seduction of false teaching, we fall into false teaching. When in our lives and in our churches, we no longer confront or or have conviction of sin in our lives. See, if our following of God in our own personal lives, if your walk with God does not regularly challenge your attitudes, your motives, and your actions, you're probably not actually following God. If you're walking with God every day and you're like, oh no, I haven't been convicted of a sin in a long time. I haven't felt felt conviction of sin. I haven't been confronted for some of my behavior. That has happened to me in a long time. I would say you're probably not following God how he would want you to. Because here's the thing, even though if you're a believer, you've been saved, the sinful desires of our hearts still live amongst us. It still is a part of us. And the gospel goes contrary to our human nature. The gospel goes against what we would naturally have. And so if you're a believer, we should regularly be convicted and we should regularly be confronted with sin in our lives. And if we're not, It may be that we're in danger of following false teaching that would let us live lives that our godliness does not matter. Not only that, but not in our own lives, but if the church, if the church stops convicting and confronting sin, it's left the gospel. That's the the biggest error of these false teachers is they were living, letting people live lives however they wanted. And if as the church, if we stop convicting people and confronting sin and calling sin, sin that the Bible does, then we are walking away from the truth of God's word. And this must never be true of the church. It must never be what true in our own lives. This false teaching was over-promised and under-delivered, but Jesus keeps his promise and always delivers. So we see four truths about false teaching. First, the reality of it. Second, the danger of the false teaching. Third, the seduction of it. Fourth, though, we see the emptiness of false teaching. The emptiness of false teaching. In verses 17 to 22, it says this. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. 
For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after having escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state is to become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it turned back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after watching, washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. We see the emptiness that underlies this false teaching that these people would offer to the church. This emptiness is seen right away in these two images in verse 17. He says this teaching, this teaching that you can live life how you want, denying scripture, it's like a waterless spring. Remember the context of where they're writing, they don't live next to Lake Michigan. They're living in desert, surrounded only by salt water. And imagine you're traveling and it's hot and you're thirsty and you see in the distance, you think it's a spring and you go there and it's empty, it's dry. And the disappointment, the lack of fulfillment that that would offer you, that's what following this teaching will lead to in your life. It's like waterless springs or like mists driven by a storm. It would be common for them to have mist and a cloud to look like rain was going to come. But right before the rain would come, a hot wind in the desert would blow and the clouds would dissipate and they would move away and there would be no calm. There would be no refreshment from the heat. And this emptiness is pictured in following what happens to us when we follow false teaching. It's reminiscent of what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. When he says this, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's empty. It will lead us, leave us always wanting more. It's shocking at the end of this passage to see a little bit more about the identity of these people as, as Peter describes them in verses 20 to 22. And it's, it's difficult as we look at it because it almost looks as if Peter's talking about these are believers who have now left and in a sense lost their salvation. So is Peter talking about genuine Christians who are part of the church and walked away and lost their salvation because of something they believed? Well, he's not. But what he's talking about is this. There are people who look like they're genuine. They look like it. And everyone around them would say, oh yeah, that person's a Christian. They go to church. They know the Bible. Well, that person has it. They have the genuine look of a Christian. And from them is coming these false teachings and these lies. So Peter's not teaching that we can lose our salvation. But what he's teaching is there may be people in the church who look Christian, but who aren't Christian who look a certain way and can talk a certain talk, but haven't believed in the gospel. These people, he refers to again with two metaphors in verse 22. These people who would know some of the truth of the gospel, but not follow it, but instead follow something else. He refers to it as a dog returning to its own vomit. Back then, dogs were not house pets. This isn't your cute golden doodle at home who's nice and cuddly. Dogs were scavengers. They were outcasts. They were gross. It's a dog, a disgusting creature for them returning to its own vomit, a disgusting picture. Or a pig. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, you know how they looked at pigs. A pig being cleaned, returning to wallow in the mud. My friends, if we know the truth, if you've understood the gospel, 
And if you've lived your life saying, I want to believe this, if we then walk away and you only have the appearance of being a Christian, but you never were genuinely converted, you never genuinely followed the Lord, but you're led astray because the world says you can have this. You can live how you want. You can do whatever you would like to do. Look at all the fun that we're having. This can be you. You're like a dog returning to your vomit. You're like a pig who's been clean walking back and rolling around in the mud. It leads ultimately to an empty life. Any teaching, anything that we follow in our lives apart from Jesus ultimately leads to emptiness. In a few weeks, uh, my wife and I will be celebrating our eighth wedding anniversary. Um, and I was reminded this week uh, of a story um, that we were talking about. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's very kind of you. <laughs> from from our, our honeymoon that we went on almost eight years ago, we went down to a resort in Mexico. And we got there, and the first day you kind of get everything together. And I realized, if you've been married, and suddenly you realize, like, in that week, it's the wedding, and then you're like, oh, and I have to pack. Like, I'm leaving the next day. So you're bound to forget something. Well, I forgot my sunglasses, which when you're in Mexico in the ocean was a substantial problem. And so we went down, I think the first or second night we were there, they have, um, we were in a resort, they had kind of like these vendors who come in and they sell sunglasses. Well, you go up and you look at them and you're like, wow, these look really nice. And you look at them and they say Oakley on them. And you're like, how much? And he's like, $10. And you're like, wait, in the U.S., Oakleys are like, they started like 150 right there. At 10. And he goes, oh, they're real. They're, they're real. And I'm like, this is my, I'm like, Okay, they're real. And I'm like, all right, they're real enough, right? Like I need something just to get me through the week. So I buy the sunglasses that are the real thing, right? These are the real ones. You can trust me. So I buy them the next day. Um, that was in the evening. The, the next day, my, my wife and I are down to pool, and it's hot, and we're laying out on the side, and I put on my sunglasses, and we're both probably taking a nap, reading a book. And eventually, I get up after wearing these sunglasses for about an hour, and I just get that look from my wife, the like, have you ever had someone give you that look where you get up and they're staring at you and you're like, what, what, what happened? Apparently, I wish you would have taken a picture of this. Apparently, these were blue Oakley sunglasses. Apparently, blue paint was streaming down <laughs> my face off the real sunglasses. Clearly, they weren't the real deal. Right? But, but the sunglasses, for someone who didn't know better, they kind of looked real. It looked like the genuine thing, but ultimately, they were empty. It didn't give any satisfaction. My friends, don't be tricked by the fake things that the world would tell you would bring you happiness. That fulfilling your own desires, following your own path, doing what you want to do is the place to find joy and happiness. That fake path is empty, but following the genuine path that God offers for us brings fulfillment. One of my favorite passages is Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. It says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. See, the world and the false teaching of the world would offer you something that they call pleasure and joy and happiness. But don't be mistaken tonight. Realize that true joy, true pleasure, true happiness is found only and following Jesus, and honoring God. False teaching will always overpromise and underdeliver, but Jesus will always keep his promise and will always deliver. 
And tonight we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus did deliver and he provides for us a way of salvation. Tonight, as we conclude our service, we're going to have the opportunity together to, to share it in communion. And if you're a follower of Jesus tonight and you're walking with him, I would encourage you um, during the final songs to come to either side where the elements will be, be and you can partake of them there. But if you're not, this is something that's, that's serious as Christians. And you can see even what we talked about tonight, one of the things that Peter was so shocked is that people would defile the Lord's table. They would defile it by living in open sin and not following Jesus, but participating in it. So if you're not a believer, just please, I would ask to let the, don't come up and just let those who are. But I would ask you this as well. If you're not a believer tonight, what lies of the world are you buying into? Because they're just empty. They're fake. It's not going to last. It's not going to bring you genuine happiness. And I would challenge you before you leave tonight, to find true joy, to find true happiness, to find true pleasure that's only found in following Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are a God who keeps your promises. God, that in you and following you is where we can find the most joy, the most happiness, the most fulfillment. God, we thank you that Jesus alone has provided for us the way of salvation through his death, through his resurrection. God, it was us who deserved to be punished. So we thank you for your love. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. May you be honored and glorified tonight as we remember again the sacrifice of Jesus for our salvation. We pray this all in his name. Amen.